Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Perbita Saha. And I'm Corinne Iosio. Everyone, welcome to the first episode of The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, Season 6. And of course, since Corinne is here, uh, that means this is a very special episode uh, for reasons other than being the season premiere. Corinne, oh, yeah. What what's could going it possibly on? possibly <laughs> We haven't set any pattern here whatsoever. So the fall issue comes out next week, and it's a really, really fun one. The theme is Daredevil, and this was a particularly potent one for me because I'm genuinely a pretty risk-averse person. (laughs) And what this issue asks is, what happens when you get up to the edge, when you get up to a cliff and you just say, F it, I'm going to (laughs) jump. And sometimes people find amazing things when they do. They learn stuff and they make discoveries. And sometimes it's also just, oh, maybe shouldn't have done that. (laughs) Some of it is uh, a man sticking a drill bit up his nose, which is genuinely featured in one of our stories in the Daredevil issue and a story I highly recommend. Highly recommend. We will not be talking about uh, blockheads today. Uh, you will have to access uh, the issue on uh, popsci.com or uh, via Apple News Plus if you uh, already use such a platform or would like to get started. Popsci is a great reason to uh, take it for a spin, I have to say. But today we are here to talk about some daredevil stories that may or may not make an appearance in the latest issue of the magazine. Uh, so let's get into it. 
So on the weirdest thing I learned this week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story that we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, creating a magazine, etc., and decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Corinne. What's your tease? My tease is that there is a world in the United States and beyond where there is such thing as a professional pogo stick. I see. And presumably a professional pogoer to yes, go on to it. go to ride atop it. Absolutely. <laughs> wow. Um, well, uh, I'm scared. <laughs> uh, can't wait to hear more about that. Um, now I'm just thinking about how I have like really never, I never mastered the pogo. I um, It seems like it should be easy. Right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, I'm very, uh, I guess as a kid, I was very quick to give up on things that embarrassed me. And I think the pogo was in that category. I was like, no, not for me. Um, yeah, see previous note about me being risk averse. <laughs> I also feel like it wasn't fun unless you could do it right and get, pretty high right yeah yeah I I remember like making my parents get me one and then being like you're never gonna use this and you can only use it outside and then them being absolutely right that I used it like twice and I was like well this is silly I'm just kind of shimmying around (laughs) trying to balance on this thing anyway trampolines much more my speed even though absolutely you can fully wreck yourself um, on a backyard trampoline in in easily, perhaps more easily. Um, well, cool. I can't wait to hear uh, what kind of professional circuit I missed out on by <laughs> giving up immediately. Uh, Perbita, what's your tease? My story is about African elephants, uh, specifically female ones, and how they have gotten the upper hand on poachers in um, Mozambique. Oh, very cool. Uh, my tease is that I want to talk about real life daredevils who uh, navigate the world like the superhero daredevil and why their experiences are a reminder that parents should let their children be daredevils. That is my story. <laughs> I want to start with pogos because I'm still I'm still really thinking about my failed attempts um, in the 90s. So I want to know I want to know where where I went wrong and where other people have gone right. Okay. Let's get into it. <laughs> so I'm going to flash back to start. I've been vaguely familiar with the idea that there's such thing as a souped up pogo stick for somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 years. Early in my pop sci career, I was the tech editor, which meant I spent a lot of time looking at a lot of stuff, going to a lot of product showcases and things like that. One year, I was walking the aisles at the Toy Fair, which is a big toy expo at the Javits Center here in New York City, and I saw someone's head bobbing up and down from the other side of a rather <laughs> high partition wall. And I rounded the corner, and there I saw a teenager on a weirdly burly looking pogo stick and he was easily clearing six or seven feet oh boy i was like okay cool and then he (gasps) backflipped and i was like damn okay he was riding something called a fly bar 
which had taken what is conventionally the the springy part of a pogo stick, literally just a steel-gauged spring, and it had replaced it with 12 giant rubber bands. And so mm-hmm, you, you mm-hmm. I have seen push these. down yeah, and then yeah, the yeah, bands yeah. spring back. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was impressive. It was a really fun novelty. I wrote it up for the magazine and more or less didn't really think about it again until this year when a viral video started making the rounds. And it was showing all of these elite pogoers doing all manner of madness. Front flips, back flips, grinds, things like that. These guys were acting like skateboarders. And I Googled it. And sure enough, Extreme Pogo is on its way, this group of madcaps hope, to becoming a thing. Capital A, capital T, a thing. (laughs) So then I found a Smithsonian Magazine article from 2012 that was running down the inventions and contraptions that got us to this point. And the inventors were folks like an MIT dropout and a former Northrop engineer. So then I called one of our longstanding pop sci writers, my friend Andrew Zaleski, and I said, Andrew, there's a um, there's a world championship of pogo in a few weeks in Pittsburgh, and I kind of think you have to go. He did not take much convincing. <laughs> so that championship, which has been going on since 2004, is called Pogo Palooza. Of course. And... The road to Pogo Palooza 2022 and the road to extreme pogo in general as a sport is, you know, paved with lots of really intense stuff and really brutal injuries, cracked kneecaps, broken bones, split muscles, even one reconstructive surgery that I know about. But also a new generation of pogo sticks that really aim to break open the sport by reimagining how these things work. So since the first time I saw a fly bar at Toy Fair, the tech has been eclipsed by what's now a go-to for professional competitive pogoers, uh, sticks from a company called Vortego. So the issue with rubber, right, is that you can only really stretch it so far, and the more you stretch it, the more it wears out, right? We all, everybody on this call has longish hair, right? We know what happens with our hair bands. We know what even happens with regular rubber bands over time. So the Vortego gets ri- doesn't use the rubber bands. It does not use steel coiled springs. Its inventor, a guy named Bruce Spencer, explained his concept to the Smithsonian and is based around basically a piston. He's compressing air. And what he figured out was that if you compress air to half its volume, you double the pressure. We didn't really figure this out. This is physics. But you go to one quarter and you push that into a cylinder and the cylinder basically becomes a jackhammer. He realized that if he used the entire length of a pogo stick to squeeze that air, he could launch a full-blown adult-sized human dangerously high. And he got a patent for it. So a Pogo Palooza ready stick, most competitors use a model called the V4, holds between 70 and 100 pounds of air pressure per square inch. Oh my gosh. So for comparison. That seems seems dangerous in and of itself. (laughs) Yes. So comparison. A basketball, eight pounds of air per square inch. A car tire, an average car tire, you know, like a Toyota Corolla or something like that, an average 
mid-sized car, somewhere between 30 and 50, right? So we're talking two times the pressure of a car tire. And to your point, Rachel, this is quite dangerous. And in the invention and iteration process, things did go badly. But for these elite guys, right, injuries are part of the game. So one of the the first generation of extreme pogoers, we are now into the second, is a fellow named Dan Mahoney. He set the first Guinness World Record for pogo jumping height in 2010, nine feet, six inches. He's got two titanium plates in his face. And a fella named Fred Grzbowski, who did some pogo stunts on the David Letterman show, uh, has broken his back. And like I said, this group more or less accepts these risks, right? What goes up must come down. And when the current world record held by Dalton Smith is 12 feet in the air, coming down can come with a really brutal thud. But that's not even the most intense part of this whole thing. Where this moves from the place where we're all just terrified and are, we start getting impressed, if we weren't already, is what these guys do while they're up there. Because remember, they better be good. It's really stinking good. <laughs> so obviously they want to see, they see this as a, the next extreme sport, right? They want to legitimize it. And so they're taking a lot of cues from X Games, skateboarding, snowboarding, BMX, the, they have moves, they become standardized, they have names, right? Some of it is self-explanatory, backflip, front flip, they grind, which is something that skateboarders do, right? But they're doing it with the peg at the bottom of the pogo stick. There's something called a 360 bar spin, which is basically the equivalent of a kickflip in skateboarding. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I can and, picture it. Yeah. And so if you're not familiar with a kickflip in skateboarding, it's when the the skater jumps off of the board and the board does a full rotation and then you land back on the board. Uh, I have never attempted, never shall. No, <laughs> not for me. But those are pretty standard, right? Let's oh, get crazy. pedestrian. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's get nuts. Let's talk about the no-foot cannonball. The no-foot cannonball happens when a jumper is mid-flight and they toss the stick up above their head. They smack their hands onto the foot pegs. And then as the pogo stick comes back down, they have to re-grab it and remount. Wow. Um, I can't even visualize that. It's, um, it took me a few. There are videos mm -hmm. we will be linking. <laughs> that there's the Mandy, which one pogoer named after his ex-girlfriend. In this one, you don't let go. You hold onto the handles and you huck the stick forward, up, and over your head, right, without letting go. And then your body spins around behind the pogo stick because your feet are no longer on the pegs and then you have to land back on the pegs again without dying. Then there's the leapfrog. In this one, the rider vaults themselves over the top of the stick, lands with the stick behind them and their heels are on the foot pegs instead of their toes, which is the normal riding position, which is also just what, okay, sure. But then... Then it turns into something called a slingshot flip. So the rider is standing there, midair. The stick is behind him. His heels are on the foot pegs. And he flips 
forward in that position, passes the stick under the legs, and again, somehow doesn't die. So you take all this and now imagine it on a course. So they're doing this stuff midair, but they're also doing it off and on a series of obstacles to impress the Pogo Palooza judges. Parkour! <laughs> How have I been working on this story with Andrew for like five weeks now? <laughs> and I have yet to experience a parkour joke. <laughs> wow. Well, happy to Thank oblige. <laughs> I feel like I need to go back into the story now and write this egregious wrong. <laughs> so... Pogo Palooza's big event is called Big Air, right? And it's basically their equivalent of freestyle runs. And they get scored half on skill and half on style. And the course has all kinds of obstacles for them. There are boxes that are two to six feet high. There are slanted platforms for for them to jump on and off of. There's a wall that they can ricochet from. And then there's something that they call the death box. The death box is more or less like any other platform, except that it's eight feet off the ground. And some people decide to jump over the death box. Other people decide to use the death box as a point from which to launch themselves even higher into the air. And that's what a young gun named Connor Kellogg did. He is the current reigning big air champion. And what he did was the first move we talked about, the no-foot cannonball, the thing where you're slapping your hands onto the foot pegs. So he did that. And then he bounced onto the death box and did what pogoers call the Bruce Lee, which is basically just a super wide kick to the sides. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Classic. Landed again. Did not die. So this is all very impressive, right? right I'm not wrong in thinking this is just kind of bananas cool, and I want people to watch it and be impressed by it. But whether or not this all takes off, if you will, in the mainstream is still very much TBD, right? This year's Pogo Palooza was the most well-attended, but it was still 150 people. Some videos have gone viral, and it seems like we're at a point where, like, a tipping point where something that inventors have been noodling on for decades is sort of starting to work out. There have been pogo iterations almost since the first toy versions were brought to the States in the roaring 20s. A Russian immigrant named George Hansberg trained performers at the Ziegfeld Follies to use the the old springy style (laughs) as part of their show. (laughs) When will that be in the Funny Girl revival? That's the real scandal. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Those people have been robbed. Robbed, I tell you. And the Vortego and the Flybar are really only the most recent attempts. Um, the scooter company Razor marketed for a time a thing called the Bogo, which was similar to the Flybar, but it used a fiberglass springy thing in order to generate its bounce. And there are even wilder ideas in the annals of the U.S. Patent Office. A couple that the writer of the Smithsonian article pointed out um, were gas-powered. And ones that had helicopter rotors on them. Yeah. Oh, I Where, think that's, yeah. I can see how that would be so smart is having um, a helicopter rotor um, near your head on an object that involved um, jumping. Um, no way that could yeah. go wrong. 
No, and like fire in the sky <laughs> should be totally fine. <laughs> I'm. Where would the rotor be exactly? You know, I, I'm not sure. I have to confess, I did not look up this particular patent. Um, I think it was on the bottom. I think the idea was more to I stay see. up than to do fancy stuff right. while you were there. Which also couldn't go wrong at all because it's not like your feet are important for anything. <laughs> no, you don't. You don't need them. Ever, you right? have a um, rotary powered pogo stick to get around. Congrats. Screw you, <laughs> flying cars. <laughs> um, and Vortego is also thinking about how to get people interested in this and excited about it, right? Because the thing about skateboarding is it is dangerous, right? You can hurt yourself, but the barrier to entry is quite literally lower, right? These professional grade pogo sticks are extremely right. intense. And you're also kind so, of hard pressed to like, in most cities and even suburbs in the US, a kid who picks up a skateboard can go find other kids who are skateboarding in a place that they know how to skateboard. And you're probably not going to find that with Extreme Pogo. <laughs> yeah. So Vortego is working on a model that is appropriate for children, right? A little bit smaller, less pressure, because they want to um, to get some fly boys and some fly girls really, really into this. Um, and you know, <laughs> God bless them. Well, and I mean, speaking from the the roller derby perspective, like to to level up uh, a sport that isn't mainstream yet, like to make the level of competition um more elite you really do have to start getting kids into it like there are now like the first generation of people who did like junior roller derby are young adults and they are like uh they they're a different species <laughs> so now, uh i remember the first bout that i went to right the the young girls were the halftime show and i was like yeah well Damn. and then you have to meet one of them who's like 23 and playing professionally or you know as close as you can get in roller derby and you're like ah yes 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 so um you have you have more years of experience in this sport than uh anyone on the planet cool <laughs> Full stop. Um, I mean, skateboarding was at the Summer Olympics for the first time this past um, this past year, and the the gold and silver and bronze medalists, I think, in uh, girls, they were all like under the age of fifteen. Right. Yeah. They were born in the aughts. Yeah. Well, and it's like you know when you look at the Olympics, a lot of the in in most sports, the people who are. Um, you know, really going to take home all the gold are the people who are like just old enough that they have like more than a decade of experience doing the sport, but still young enough that like, you know, doing the sport constantly <laughs> hasn't destroyed them. So I can understand why Extreme Pogo wants to uh, wants to get in on that. That is definitely what they need to get into like that, you know, X Games style space. Exactly. Like, this is a talent pipeline problem. Yeah, pipeline problem. Um, wow. I still don't want to do it, though. <laughs> no, no. I'm, no. I'm ever yeah. more impressed, but no. <laughs> I, the level of impressed that I am is equal to my level of no thank you. <laughs> yeah. It does make me miss, um, not that I ever owned them, but remember when, like, moon boots were a thing? The little, like, trampoline mm. shoes? Yeah. I think those should make a comeback. That, I think... Your personal I, trampoline. Yeah. 
Yeah. Those are not dangerous, were they? I mean, anything can be dangerous if if it encourages you to launch yourself into the air and do flips and stuff. Uh, so anyway. I will I will say for the olds out there, uh, including all of us, I, I do think it's okay to have your one I can break all my bones sport in adulthood. Like, yeah, a, I I agree. I I have broken all of my bones in adulthood, so I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it's true. Just because you didn't grow up doing stupid, dangerous stuff that you know made your parents freak out, um, which will become relevant when I do my fact. But <laughs> just because you didn't do that doesn't mean you can't do it now. There's still and time. It also doesn't mean your parents won't freak out. That's either. true. They will probably grow up. Yeah, they do. They'll they'll say, "Why are you doing this? <laughs> You're too old for this." Shit. And you'll be like, <laughs> "It wasn't a phase, mom. I'm a daredevil now." <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're gonna take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more facts. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Okay, we're back. And uh, Prabita, tell me about some daring elephants. Yeah, uh, we're going to talk about African elephants, which I believe are the biggest land mammals we have or land animals we have uh, on this planet. And this story came out of one of the features in the Daredevil issue written by Jason Biddle, who is an excellent uh, animal journalist. And Jason pieced together a few examples of daredevilish beasts who are adapting to all the pressures that humans are putting on the planet and its resources and adapting in ways that are not so much depressing, but more inspiring and also mind-blowing in terms of what we think the limits of biology are. So Jason covers some great species. Uh, There's a very funny-looking turtle that lives on Kauai now. There's a stripy snake that is switching up its its appearance. And then we have the African bush elephants. So before I get into the story, I want to give a little background on 
the specific place where some of this research on elephants took place. It's a national park called Gorongosa, uh, quite famous. It's very well visited today because of its diversity of wildlife. And it's in the African nation of Mozambique, which went through a giant civil war between the 70s and 90s. And during this time, a lot of the megafauna in Mozambique were killed either uh, because of poaching for meat or poaching to distribute the resources and make money for both sides of the war. So after the Civil War, the wildlife populations in Gorongosa were depleted, and the elephants were particularly hard hit. They were down to 90% of their population. And in the decades since, the, the animals have seen a really great rebound because the national park is really well managed, and there are a lot of locals who are contributing to protecting the wildlife and also building out economic revenue from getting tourists and travelers to the, to the national park. So with this giant crisis in the country's history, there have been a lot of studies looking at what have the impacts been on the different wildlife species and how have they adapted as they've come back uh, in this uh, time of peace. And African elephants have provided a really interesting example. Um, In the few years right after the war, biologists noticed that a lot of the elephants were being born without tusks. And this is a huge deal. I mean, if you picture an elephant in your head, whether it be African or Asian, you immediately think about the tusks. They're huge. Um, In an African elephant, they can grow up to six feet long each and be 50 pounds. And that also means 50 pounds of ivory, which sells at a really high rate. Um, It is being cracked down on a lot these days, but it can still go for one African elephant tusk can go for up to 5,000 US dollars. So huge market. You can see why impoverished poachers would continue to harvest that. Um, But it's a big deal that an elephant would be born without those tusks. Uh, They don't just use them to defend themselves. Um, They also use them to forage for food um, and to kind of excavate the land as they need. So it's not only very important for the survival of an elephant, but it also has a really big footprint on the land where these herds live. So in the early 2000s, people were noticing that specifically female elephants were being born tuskless. And it wasn't just in Gorongosa National Park either. It was happening in many countries across Africa. It was happening in Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda. So different groups of biologists started looking at these populations. And the biggest effect we've seen has been in Mozambique. So a study released in the journal Science in 2021, researchers actually clued in on what made this switch happen among the elephant herds. 
So they had this uh, idea that because it was only being seen in the female elephants, that it was being passed down by the X chromosome, since females have two of that chromosome. So they took blood samples from both male and females, tusks and tuskless, from the Gorongosa herds, and they found that the tuskless animals had um, the presence of two genes and on the X chromosome, and they were mutated. And these genes are, humans actually have them too. Um, they help us grow in our incisor teeth. So think about that times like <laughs> 100 to make a tusk in an elephant. Uh, but in the Wait, females... which ones are the incisors? Uh, sorry? Which ones are our incisors? Is it the, I think is it the ones we call the, canines? No. I think they're the pointy ones, right? They're the pointy ones. Okay. <laughs> I might be wrong. I think so. More colloquially okay. called vampire teeth. Uh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the females, uh, this these two genes were mutated in them. And again, because they have two copies of the X chromosome, the mutations ended up being dominant. So they would be born without tusks. Any males who ended up with those genes, because they could still get a copy from their mother, uh, they actually were not born. It was a lethal. It was a lethal mutation for the males. So that's why we end up only seeing tusklessness in the females. Mm. And it was pretty prevalent. I mean, it's important to know that the elephant population was really small by the end of the war, and it's only been steadily climbing. But the percentage of tusklessness was up to, was anywhere between 30% and 50% in the female elephants, uh, which is a lot. You know, if you're looking out into a herd, um, let's say it's about 20 elephants deep, um, you're seeing between like six and 10 elephants that don't have tusks there. So uh, it's a, it's a major, major effect. Um, and the similar numbers were seen in the other African parks as well. So it's not like tusklessness never was seen in elephants before. There were, you know, randomly there would be a female or male born without tusks um, pre-poaching. But with the specific, you know, factor of like heavily increased poaching and that connection to um the very severe rise in tusklessness, it seems pretty clear that the females were doing this just so that they wouldn't be targets for hunting. And it makes sense, you know, why would a poacher go after an elephant if it doesn't have tusks? This has also been seen in other animals like bighorn sheep, which are a commonly hunted game animal up in Canada. Uh, some populations have gotten to the point where they have smaller horns because the ones with the bigger horns are more heavily hunted. So the big question, well, there are a couple big questions still. Um, we still, because poaching is so um, defended against in Gorongosa Park now, it's hard to know whether those females do evade poachers as they're intending to. So most of this is still hypothetical, but it's a very strong hypothesis uh, and a very clever one, it seems, on the elephant's part. 
But there could be some really serious survival disadvantages to not having tusks. So in a way, it could backfire on the female elephants in the herds. So that's something that biologists are still trying to figure out. We've had a couple decades to see this pattern of losing tusks. But now the question is, okay, how does it affect the elephant survival outside of poaching? Uh, one thing that scientists have already seen is that the elephants that don't have tusks, they actually eat a different diet of plants than the elephants that do have tusks. Oh, wow. Because they have to forage in a different way. Right. They can't pull stuff and move stuff around in the same way. Yeah, like strip down tree bark, uh, kind of dig up plants. So one question is, okay, is that diet just as nutritious? Um, and even more of a far out question is, if we end up with a elephant herd that is 30% tuskless, what does that look like on the local environment? Hmm. Like I said before, the fact that elephants have tusks, that really shapes what landscapes look like. Um, we've kind of had similar questions about the disappearance of bison and buffalo here in the U.S. Like that completely changed what the American West looked like. So maybe we'll see the same effects in these microcosms of national parks in Africa. Um, so lots of questions and maybe this bold daredevilish streak in female African elephants uh, is not all that beneficial in the long run, but it is a really interesting, um, really interesting adaptation to poaching and very quick too. It happened in just a few decades. Yeah, I was going to say, is that even two generations? Not even. Um, yeah, elephants are pretty long lived. They live a long time. Yeah, I think. I think again. One reason it was expedited was because the pool of elephants became so small from the poaching. So any elephants that, any females that did have the mutations could pass it on and it kind of became amplified in those like right. maternal lineages. In the gene pool. Yeah. It's so interesting. And it's a, it's going to yeah. be so fascinating to see how that um, impacts the landscape. Like you said, everything is so connected. Mm -hmm. I think there might be a song about that, even, that features um, some elephants. <laughs> uh, I won't sing it yeah. today, but... <laughs> okay, next We're time. We're all singing it in our hearts. <laughs> we'll remember. And I do want to give a daredevil shout out to the park rangers who work um, at Gorongosa and some of these other sites in Africa. Uh, it's a very dangerous job, and I think we've all read stories about... Um, so these conflicts that they have with poachers and many of them end up losing their lives. Um, so yeah, a lot of the wildlife diversity we have today is thanks to them and thanks to their own daredevilishness. Yeah. Awesome. All right. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back with one more fact. Right, we're back. And um, I am going to talk about why uh, echolocation might be 
a much more common human superpower than you think. Uh, so in 2015, the NPR podcast Invisibilia did an episode called How to Become Batman. And that was my first real introduction to Daniel Kish, who's arguably the most famous human echolocator on the planet. Um, but it wasn't the first time I'd seen him. And even if you missed that NPR segment, you've probably seen viral videos of Kish. Uh, he lost his eyes to retinal cancer during infancy, but he has this ability to navigate the world that rivals that of any sighted person. He uses his tongue to make these clicking noises, um, and then he interprets the sounds and their echoes to give him feedback on the space and objects around him. And he is very, very good at it. Uh, in a way that really um, blows people away when they see it for the first time. Um, and of course, uh, inspires a lot of comparisons to the superhero uh, Daredevil, which is why my husband Oliver suggested <laughs> that I get into this one for today. So Kish is now famous for teaching loads of other people uh, with visual impairments how to use what he calls flash sonar. He prefers that um, to echolocation, though uh it is not surprising that people uh, often make that comparison since bats echolocate by making little noises and then interpreting how they come back to them. And his prominence has inspired loads of research. Um, and as it turns out, uh, flash sonar or echolocation might actually be a pretty common superpower. So according to an analysis by uh, Cambridge psychologists in 2014, the earliest known example of this practice was reported in 1954 uh, when researchers described a child uh, who produced clicking sounds to navigate his neighborhood on his bicycle. Uh, and he was, of course, blind. But it's actually quite likely that the French philosopher uh, Diderot, I, sure, that's his name, <laughs> great, described something similar in 1749. Um, he recounted that a blind acquaintance of his could locate and estimate the positions of objects that didn't give off their own sound. He thought that his friend was like taking note of tiny changes in air pressure to his skin, which would be totally wild. Um, and sure enough, as late as the 1940s, folks were still trying to explain how that would actually work. Um, a lot of the proposed explanations were like very woo-woo, bordering on <laughs> occults. And it was around this time that researchers started to figure out that this might actually be an auditory thing. Um, the objects weren't producing sound, but the people perceiving those objects obviously were, uh, because people make sounds <laughs> just by existing in a space. Uh, by the 1960s, folks had started doing experiments where, for example, they gave their blind subjects earplugs and thereby removed their ability to guess where objects were. Um, and on the other hand, you had experiments that numbed the skin <laughs> to try to negate the like very spooky sounding air pressure sensing, and that had no actual effect on their ability to navigate. Um, so uh, we, we got our way there <laughs> eventually. Uh, and this, of course, makes sense, uh, because even if you're not producing clicks with your tongue, uh, moving around produces noise, breathing produces noise, and everyone with the ability to hear 
uses audio to get information about the world. Um, you can tell when a car is speeding by behind you. You also know when that car is gone. You can tell the vague size and shape of like a horrifying dark void you're dropped into by saying, hello, you know, you get the idea. Like we <laughs> all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, definitely to me, at least once a week. But all joking aside, um, we do definitely use auditory information to um, figure out the physical spaces we're in. I mean, if you think about, um, you know, kind of like 3D immersive audio sound design and how like if you're listening to um, an audio drama that uses 3D audio, you can like hear someone walking around behind you and you can tell that they're leaning in and getting close based on like the quality of the whisper and where it is in space. And you can tell that you're in like a, I don't know, a tiny room because of the quality of the sound. So all of this is to say that like, yes, of course sound tells you about the space you're in and the objects around you. Um, and obviously when a visually impaired person who has the full use of their hearing uses a mobility tool like a cane, they're getting auditory input along with the tactile. So I think it's really interesting that it took someone doing something as like in your face and superhero-esque as Kish does for everyday sighted people to be like, oh, wow, that's so f***ing cool. I wish I could do that. When really, like all visually impaired people uh, who can hear probably do this. And the good news is that um, you probably can too. So in 2021, an admittedly very small study uh, led by researchers at Durham University showed that uh, blind and sighted people alike could learn to effectively use flash sonar with 10 weeks of sessions. Um, so we're talking about like something from 40 to 60 hours of training total. And by the end of it, some of them were even better at specific tests of their spatial perception than long-term experts of the technique. Um, and that's especially cool because the idea of deliberately teaching this practice to people who could benefit from it is super new. Kish has really spearheaded that. So any methods of teaching it that seem particularly effective um, can really have a huge impact on someone's independence, confidence, and of course, the resulting quality of life. And that brings me to kind of an unfortunate side note, but one that um, I hope is going to change soon. The work on this topic increasingly suggests that Kish's trajectory of teaching himself flash sonar, probably from infancy, um, isn't quite the wild superhero origin story it's often presented as in those viral videos. Um, or it is, but it doesn't have to be an uncommon superhero origin story. It seems pretty clear that most humans who have limited vision and who don't have auditory limitations are capable of using hearing to replace sight. I know the heightened senses thing is like such a TV trope that you're probably like, duh. But I mean, literally, <laughs> when the average person off the street hears clicks like the ones Kish uses, their brains just hear noise. Your brain re would react the same way you would react to any man clicking his tongue. Whatever that calls to mind for you is what it calls to mind. But something different happens in your brain if you've learned to use flash sonar like Kish has. And it's different between sighted people and blind people. So if you can see, parts of your brain associated with auditory processing light up. 
um, in, in this particular pattern. You're recognizing that there is information encoded into these clicks. Like think of it as the equivalent as like your ears perking up at the neuron level. Um, so you're looking for that information with the part of your brain that interprets audio. You know, that same part of your brain that's able to say, oh, there's someone walking behind me and they're wearing high heels and they're getting closer and they're getting faster. Oh no. Or, you know, whatever. Getting attacked by somebody in stilettos. That's the scenario. In <laughs> in blind... Every day. Yeah. Oh my gosh. All the time. It's the concrete jungle. Um, in blind participants though, researchers, they saw those same areas light up, but they also saw parts of the brain associated with visual processing light up. Um, so the journal Frontiers for Young Minds, which basically writes up scientific findings for like very young children to read, um, had a great way of explaining this that I'm going to steal uh, because we're all children at heart, really. Um, so imagine your brain is full of train lines. You've got your New York City subway and you've got your Metro North Regional Rail and you've got Amtrak and you need the right ticket to get on each one. Now, consider the senses. Sight and hearing are quite similar to each other in that they take input from the world, light waves and sound waves, and then convert them into electrical signals that your brain interprets because everything's made up inside your head. <laughs> but they run on different rail lines. So research on so-called human echolocation shows us that if you're not using your visual processing centers, your brain can reroute different traffic there. So, like, imagine if suddenly your weekly subway ticket was good for Amtrak, too. <laughs> Wild. Um, so when we say senses are heightened, it's important to remember that, like, we create senses inside our brains. So what that looks like isn't like, oh, their hearing is so much sensitive, though it, it may literally be more sensitive in some people. But their brains are literally working smarter, not harder to better analyze auditory information using these train lines that otherwise would not have passengers. That's just, a cool analogy. Yeah. yeah, I loved it. Yeah. I'm also just thinking about where I would go if my Metro card suddenly <laughs> worked on Amtrak. Right. I was like, it wouldn't be very useful for like day to day. So that's where my picking specific train lines for this analogy falls apart. But um, imagine that it opened up a whole new world for you. <laughs> um, so why do we care? Um, well, other than the fact that this is just really freaking cool and shows uh, that brains are capable of doing some weird and wonderful stuff. Um, and also that, uh, you know, differences in uh, ability when it comes to particular senses uh, do not translate to, you know, a loss of overall total ability to perceive the world. We also care because anything that involves getting your brain to do things differently than it generally does is easier when you're a kid. Uh, you know, we call that neuroplasticity, and your brain is very plastic <laughs> when you're a baby, um, simply because you've done less. Like, your brain really forms these, like, neuron pathways that are, like, shortcuts. Like, you, we often do things this way, so we're going to make a, a really – a really express train line <laughs> that does this. Um, and you can always alter the pathways in your brain. Um, that is what a lot of trauma therapy is designed to do. It's really cool that our brains can do this. But it will always be easiest 
to put in new train lines or reroute them when like there aren't train lines there yet or there haven't been any passengers on them yet. Like there's really the world is your oyster when you've got a squishy little toddler brain from a neuroplasticity standpoint. Um, All brains are squishy. So there's very real reason to believe that when you give a child the freedom to explore the world around them using whatever senses they have available to them, that will set them up to be able to navigate the world without limitations as they get older. So there isn't much research on this yet, but there is this growing sense that probably a lot of people with visual impairments would learn to do this uh, naturally or could, um, but are maybe hindered by uh, well-meaning attempts to keep them safe. So uh, if you are not given the opportunity to toddle around your house, uh, you know, figuring out what noises your slappy feet make that translate to uh, how fast you're careening down the hall and all of that fun stuff, um, that missing out on that period, um, you know, can make it harder for you to do this later. Uh, Like I said, it does seem like it is totally possible for older people to learn. um, And so you should not feel uh, disparaged, dismayed. You should not feel like you shouldn't try to do this if you think it could um, be fun, if you think it could improve your quality of life. Uh, But uh, when it comes to parenting, it is um, a difficult but important thing for uh, parents to try to remember. Um, And that's an important lesson for all parents, actually, because research shows that having the ability to undertake Risky, dangerous play in the safest way possible is key to developing confidence and critical thinking skills and self-preservation. Even letting kids experiment with being like kind of mean or like beheading their Barbies, which is called dark play. We had a great essay about that in a previous issue of the magazine. Um, I'll link to that on popside.com slash weird. But even that kind of stuff where it's like, is my kid like identifying with the villain of this Disney movie? And are they going to do that forever? No, let them enjoy it for a couple weeks. It's an important way of letting people develop their own moral codes, Um, as opposed to just feeling like afraid of everything or like, I don't do this because I'm ashamed to to identify strongly with the villain of this Disney movie, you know, that kind of thing. Obviously, parenting is very hard and um, I am in awe of people who do it, but danger being a little bit of a daredevil does seem to be pretty important. I'm going to end with a quote from Daniel Kish that came up uh, on a few kind of articles geared towards helping parents navigate this stuff and that I just really love and I think is universally applicable. He says, running into a pole is a drag, but never being allowed to run into a pole is a disaster. That's great. Yeah. That's so good. Brains are wild. People can do anything. I love it. Yeah. Wow. Now I'm just thinking. Remember how at the beginning I was like, I'm a very risk-averse person. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, do, I have to say, doing researching this this morning, I was like <laughs> thinking back on some moments of abject terror in my childhood and being like, well, I guess that's why I hate breaking rules. Um, but it's also like, but- I wasn't like feigning to do the things, right? Right. Like, it wasn't like they had to hold me back. <laughs> 
Yeah, so. I don't remember ever being um, fearless. So <laughs> uh, something to and well, and I have to say too, like I really am um, in awe of parents who seem to have mastered this balance, and it's something that I worry I'm going to be really bad at once I'm a parent. Because like, if I see a kid doing something and I'm worried they're going to fall. I'm like, oh, my heart is in my throat. <laughs> um, and like, I understand that there is like a, a um, there's a, there's a fine line. Like, is that fall actually going to put the kid in like serious risk? A lot of falls won't. Some will. One time. And sometimes your a... pogo stick explodes. Right. That too. <laughs> and sometimes your pogo stick explodes. So it's all relative. Um, anyway, I, uh. I love I love this story for the neuroplasticity angle, but also, um, you know, just in terms of like the importance of um, not uh, not trying to figure out people's limitations for them. You know, we all have limits and no one will know them but us through trial and error. So I have run into a pole before. (laughs) I think it was actually like a like a traffic sign or something. Like, you know, or, or like a parking mm-hmm, sign mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on the I sidewalk. have very poor spatial awareness. It's bad. Um, my peripheral vision is fine, but I ignore it. So that's what I have going for me. I um, think I was looking at my phone. <laughs> That'll do it, too. That'll do it. <laughs> I say run into poles, but do not put your tongue on a cold pole. Because oh, that definitely, definitely don't do that. is bad. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what was the weirdest thing we learned this week? These are all so good. Um, they are really good. Um, I mean, Pogo blew my mind, but so did Elephant. I know. I was going to say I like echolocation just because it has such a broad, it can affect so many people. Yeah, I think echolocation, right, is the one that's staying with me. <laughs> For me, it's just like, dude. I will I will accept the win by a hair <laughs> with a very close tie for second. Uh, from the two of you. So uh, excellent. Everybody, check out our Daredevil issue. You can find links to subscribe on popside.com. Uh, or if you're already an Apple News Plus subscriber, you can find it right there in your feed. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other weirdos find the show. For more information on the stories you heard in this episode, come find us at popsi.com weird. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popsi.threadless.com. The show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, with editing and audio engineering by Jess Bodie. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. 
bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly. Which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.